At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfaw, and I am thrilled to be here today with one of my colleagues here at Johns Hopkins, one of my former residents, former chief residents, a fantastic person, Dr. Anna Gitterman. And we've got a great show for you today. Before we start, I want to just remind everyone that we now have CME available by the wonderful company CMEify. Uh, it makes it incredibly easy. If you want to get CME through ACRAC, just look on the show notes at ACRAC.com. You'll see a link. You click on that. You do a very quick, about 30-second reflection and pay a small fee, and you can get your CME credits. It's going to be much cheaper than paying for a CME conference uh, and uh, much, much easier if you're listening to the episode anyway. So check that out if you need CME credits. All right. So today, we, based on popular demand, are going to do another oral board episode. Dr. Gitterman runs our oral board prep uh, curriculum here uh, for our residency. And so she has kindly volunteered to come on and put me through the ringer, uh, take me through an oral board session. But I'm going to turn it over to Anna and uh, both Anna say thank you for coming on the show and then ask you to tell us about uh, the structure. Just give people a refresher of what the structure of the uh, oral board or, or what is called the structured oral exam is. Absolutely. I am so glad to be here today. I know oral boards can be certainly a frightening topic. Um, so I think it's certainly a valuable thing to review. In terms of when you are eligible to take your oral boards, um, it is after that you take your advanced exam when you graduate, typically the July after your CA3 year. So when you find out that you've passed your advanced exam, you are then eligible to sign up for the applied exam. And there's two components to the applied exam. It's the standard oral examination, which is what we'll be doing today. And that's also coupled with an OSCE that are typically performed um, in the same day. Previously, people would travel to a hotel and take the exam in person. During COVID, it has been transitioned to a virtual format. And I believe this spring, it's going back to an in-person format. But kind of pending pandemic times, we'll see what happens there. Great. And Anna, what is the, so the, the, uh, obviously there's the OSCE and the structural exam. Structural oral, oral exam is what people tend to refer to when they say oral boards. And what does that look like, the actual oral board uh, section? Sure. So it's split up into two sessions. The first session is typically a longer stem that gives you more pre-op information about your patient. And you're asked questions about intraoperative and then postoperative events. Then your second session is is a shorter stem where you're asked about pre-op and then intra-op questions. So by and large, the vast majority of your time is intraoperative topics, but they also cover the perioperative spectrum, both pre-op and post-op in those two different sessions. So in each session, there's two examiners, and they'll split either the intra-op and post-op or the pre-op and intra-op sessions. Um, and each session is a total of 35 minutes, so 10, um, 10 minutes on either pre-op or post-op and 15 minutes usually on the intra-op. And then 10 minutes for the grab bag. For the additional, exactly. So they call them additional topics or the grab bag questions. And there'll be three unrelated topics to the STEM itself. And you'll just have to answer questions about either any range of anesthesia topics. Great. And I'm just going to put the caveat up front here that uh, I may not get every one of these questions exactly right. In other words, uh, and that's how it'll be on the, on the true oral boards, right? You're not going to get everything right. And that's okay. 
Um, so what we're not doing here is trying to teach you the exact right answer to each of the points that will come up. The point is to give you a feel for the flow, the type of uh, fluidity of answers you want to try to give, the way to approach these kind of answers um, that will be effective. But again, don't take to the bank that everything I answer to Anna's uh, interrogations here is definitely um, exactly correct. Uh, the point is not that, and this is not a uh, this is not a teaching session to teach you the topics. It's to teach you about oral boards and you know how one might approach it. All right, so let's. Um, Anna, do you want to? We're going to do one of the ones that's intra-op and post-op, so the one that has a little more extensive of a pre-op section that they give you. And and what will happen on the real oral boards is they'll give you this page full of pre-op information, and they'll give you a period of time, you know, 10, 15 minutes or so where you can read it and take notes, uh, jot some stuff down, whatever it is that will help you as you go through. So Anna, do you wanna read the STEM and, and the pre-op information? And then maybe what I'll do is go through and, and say the things that are sticking in my mind that I would wanna make, maybe make a note about to keep in mind as I'm answering the questions. Absolutely. So our patient today is a 66 year old, 76 kilogram man who is scheduled for a radical prostatectomy. So our patient noted the onset of progressively worsening difficulty with urination. He consulted his urologist who subsequently biopsied him for a suspicious prostatic nodule and his metastatic workup is negative. In terms of his past medical history, he had a myocardial infarction 16 months ago, which was complicated by congestive heart failure. His current anginal pattern is stable. He has excellent exercise tolerance, walking up to two miles a day and up to two flights of stairs without difficulty. An echocardiogram performed three days ago revealed an ejection fraction of 45% and a BNP level of 225, and the normal is typically less than 100. His current medications include a tenolol, an ACE inhibitor, aspirin 81 milligrams, and sublingual nitroglycerin, but he hasn't used his nitroglycerin in more than three months. He also has a 30-pack year history of smoking tobacco, but has not smoked in 20 years. He also had hepatitis at the age of 37. His current physical exam includes his vital signs, a pulse of 65, a blood pressure of 140 over 80, a respiratory rate of 16, and a temperature of 36.1. His airway appears normal. He has no evidence of organomegaly or peripheral edema. His EKG reveals a left bundle branch block, and his labs show a hemoglobin of 14.5 grams per deciliter, normal electrolytes, normal albumin, normal liver function tests, and normal coagulation studies. He arrives into the operating room at nine o'clock with a functioning peripheral IV and left subclavian central venous uh, catheter in place. Having taken his, he did take his, his normal morning dose of atenolol and his ACE inhibitor. Great. So that's the information you would have and that I have here. And so what I'm thinking, and I'll just go back through what Anna said here. So, uh, you know, 66 year old, so not particularly old, but not a young guy. He's more or less a normal weight. We don't have his height, but let's assume he's normal height. Then that 76 kilos is a relatively normal weight. And he's having a radical prostatectomy, which is a, you know, relatively kind of medium risk surgery with the risk for some bleeding, though not certainly the same as, for example, an open AAA or something like that. Um, looking at his HPI, he's had uh, this worsening difficulty with urination. Great. That goes along with the fact that he needs this prostatectomy. Uh, evidently, he had this biopsy, suspicious nodule. Um, his metastatic workup is negative. Great. Not a whole lot I'm concerned about in there. The past medical history, so certainly the fact that he had an MI 16 months ago is significant. It's significant that he had one because it means he's got coronary artery disease, and we're not told that he had any revascularization. So, we may, he may have, but we're not told that. So we have to assume that he had this MI and did not get uh, revascularized. Now they may tell me at some point during the, uh, the questioning that I should assume he did have a revascularization, but if, in the absence of that, I'm going to assume he has not, which means he still has coronary artery disease. It seems to be stable. They're telling us that he had some CHF and that his EF, his ejection fraction is 45%, which is reduced, but not a lot. So it's close to normal function, not quite. He's got a slightly elevated BNP level, which goes along with having some kind of stable CHF. Um, his, uh, and by the way, CHF is, is used in this stem because it's an older stem, but we don't use that term anymore. We would say heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or HEFRAF um, is what he has. His anginal pattern is stable. That's great. He's only, uh, he hasn't used nitro in uh, nitroglycerin in more than three months. That's great. The fact that his MI was 16 months ago is important because if it was less than six months ago, 
that would really be a contraindication to any elective surgery. Um, but that's not the case here. He's had enough time. And the fact that he can get up a couple of flights of steps without difficulty, without chest pain, without needing his nitroglycerin, I, all of that is positive. And I'm going to have that in my head as reasons to justify why I would be willing to go ahead with this case in case I get asked that, which I may or may not get asked, but it's good to anticipate questions that might come. The fact that he had this echo and that the only issue was a slightly reduced digestion fraction is also good. I'm going to assume that because they didn't mention any valvular abnormalities or anything like that, that we're in good shape there. Uh, he's on a tenolol, so I would want to make sure he took it, and I'm told that he did. Any beta blocker, I would want to make sure he took it. If I was told he had not taken it or I wasn't told, I would be thinking in my head I would want to make sure he had his beta blockade. His ACE inhibitor would be great if he hadn't taken it. The fact that he did, I'm going to keep in my head, all right, he took his, his ACE inhibitor. Hypotension may well be a result. It might be refractory to our normal treatments of phenylephrine and ephedrine. So I want to have in my head that I might need to treat with something like norepinephrine or epinephrine or vasopressin. Um, all right. So he ha we already talked about the fact that he hasn't used his nitroglycerin. The fact that he's got a 30-pack year smoking history, even though it's been 20 years, I'm going to have in my head, he may have some bronchospasm. He may have some undiagnosed um, COPD. Uh, certainly, it's a risk factor for coronary artery disease, but we already know he has that. So we have that in our minds. He had this hepatitis at age 37. You know, I'm anticipating they may ask me about that or whether I'm concerned about his liver or whether uh, inhaled anesthetics might hurt his liver, given that he had this hepatitis. I'm not that concerned about it, but I'm anticipating those questions. His vitals look good. His pulse is controlled. He's well beta blocked. That's good. I want to keep that in mind, of course, that he is beta blocked and therefore a tachycardic response may not happen uh, to, for example, bleeding the way it would with um, another patient who wasn't beta blocked. His blood pressure is slightly up, but not bad. His respiratory rate's fine and his temperature is not, not too bad, slightly below uh, 37, but not bad. Great that his airway looks good. Great that he does not have peripheral edema, um, even though he's got the history of some CHF. The EKG showing the left bundle branch block would want to make sure that's not new. And so that's something that, uh, you know, before inducing him uh, would want to really be sure that that is um, he's got this chronic left bundle. A new left bundle would obviously be more worrisome and we would need to work that up before taking him to surgery. His hemoglobin looks fine. All of his liver uh, things, both his liver function tests and his liver um, uh, synthetic function, things like albumin and his coagulation studies all look normal and that's good. And then we come to the operating room. The fact that he's got a central line is uh, I think a, a, a consequence of this being an old stem because of course it would not be typical to place a central line. But when I know a subclavian line has been placed, I am thinking about the potential for pneumothorax since it's relatively high risk for that. And so if there's hypotension, if there's hypoxia, I already have in my mind, I have to have pneumothorax up on my list, up on my differential. And we already talked about the fact that he took his tenwall and ACE inhibitor. So that's what's in my head. Anna, how about you? Anything that I didn't think of that you would have noted? No, that's the vast majority of what I was thinking about in terms of kind of trying to predict critical events. I, you know, from the start, I'm not particularly concerned about the airway. The patient is not morbidly obese and they tell me his airway exam looks normal. So in terms of preparing for a difficult airway, there's not, they're not really giving me that information or giving me a lot of cardiac information. So I'm anticipating some type of perioperative cardiac event. His ejection fraction is you know, moderately depressed, but not too significantly, certainly doesn't have signs of volume overload on exam. And the only other thing I would mention about his left bundle is it can obscure signs of ischemia intraoperatively. So our standard, you know, STEMI criteria would be altered. So I'm just thinking how, you know, a, an acute coronary event might look like, uh, what, what that might look like in this patient. Great. I agree with all of that. All right. So let's do it. Okay. So your patient requests an epidural analgesia for, or an epidural for analgesia in the postoperative period. Um, what are your, what are your thoughts? Would you place an epidural in this patient? Yeah, I would be fine placing an epidural in this patient um, in general. And certainly at his request, I would, in my mind, want to make sure that he is uh, not uh, coagulopathic, but we already know that. So the fact that he's not coagulopathic, the fact that there's no contraindication in terms of an infection in the back, in terms of previous spine surgery, uh, all make me feel comfortable placing an epidural in this patient. Uh, we didn't get a specific information about his platelet level. I would want to know that and make sure that it was fine. But assuming that it was, I would be comfortable placing an epidural. 
Sure. Are there any advantages to an epidural as opposed to an IDPCA postoperatively? Yeah, there are significant advantages. So you, by using an epidural, you can decrease the amount of opiate that a patient needs, assuming it's a working epidural. That has a significant number of advantages. Uh, opiates are proemetic. They cause constipation. They can make people feel altered and even cause and lead to increased risk of delirium. And an epidural, at least if used only with, um, with uh, local anesthetic, avoids all of that if it's working well. So patients can really use less opiates and have less side effects from those opiates. Sure. So, but during the placement, you accidentally have an unanticipated wet tap. Would you still proceed with the case? Yeah, there's a few options here. Uh, I could thread the catheter into the intrathecal space and run it as a continuous spinal, uh, or I can pull that uh, needle out, go up into another level and try to place the epidural. I would opt for that second option because it is a little complicated running a continuous spinal on the floor. If it gets mistaken for an epidural, there could be a medical error with giving too much of a dose into the intrathecal space. So I would pull out my needle, I would go up or down one level, and I would try again to place an epidural. Sure. So you successfully placed your epidural. Would you dose it with local anesthetic prior to induction? I would not dose it prior to induction. There's not a lot of advantage to having pain control on board when there's no incision being made. And I would not want to cause a sympathectomy right before I give induction meds that will further cause vasodilation and hypotension. Um, I would, however, run it uh, during the case. Sure. But without dosing local anesthetic, can you be sure that your epidural catheter is going to function appropriately? So what I would do is give a test dose uh, during placement. That test dose uh, is typically three cc's of 1.5% lidocaine with some epi. I would make sure that there wasn't a uh, tachycardic response, meaning the ruling out the epinephrine being intravascular. And I would, uh, if the uh, there was no effect that looked like a spinal, meaning the lidocaine was not going intrathecally, then what I would do is just go ahead and give the rest of that test dose. And the, that vial usually comes with five cc's. By giving that five cc's of 1.5% lidocaine, I will often be able to then measure a level by the time we get to the OR. So assuming I'm placing this epidural in the pre-op area, by the time we get to the operating room, I can test for a level and have a good feel that it's working. However, if we didn't do that, or we or I didn't want to uh, give that local anesthetic, uh, the other option would be to start running it intraoperatively. And if the patient didn't seem to be responding to incision, then I could feel relatively good about it working. Also, if I saw a decrease in blood pressure when I dosed it, it would make me feel like this was probably having some effect. Sure. Now, what would be your choice for induction agents of general anesthesia in this patient? So in this patient uh, who has some coronary artery disease, a little bit of a reduced ejection fraction, I would have the option of either doing small intermittent doses of propofol uh, mixed with some presser to keep blood pressure up, um, or uh, using another agent uh, to make sure we don't cause uh, hypotension, such as atomidate um, or ketamine. For, for this patient, given that he's relatively stable and he's been doing well from a cardiac standpoint, I would be comfortable using propofol. I would give some phenylephrine along with the propofol to maintain his blood pressure. The other advantage of the phenylephrine is that it's likely to decrease rather than increase heart rate. And again, in this patient with what what I'm assuming is unrevascularized coronary artery disease, I would want to make sure to keep his heart rate low. Sure. Would you also administer some fentanyl with your induction? I would actually use esmolol instead of fentanyl, though I think fentanyl would be a reasonable option. But in this patient who now has a functioning epidural and will allow me hopefully to avoid using opiates, he's also a 66-year-old man who is old enough that uh, he's at risk for post-op delirium. I would want to avoid opiates as much as I can. And so uh, rather than use fentanyl during induction, I would use some esmolol to keep his heart rate down and control that sympathetic response to intubation. If I didn't have esmolol, I would be comfortable using fentanyl, uh, but my first choice would be esmolol. Sure. So after your induction, the patient is an easy mask ventilation, but you have attempted to visualize the glottic opening, but after four laryngoscopies, you know, the last is just an esophageal intubation. Your SATs are still at 100%. What is your next step? So I'll just say that I would uh, ideally not have made four attempts with um, a blade. Uh, I would have, after three unsuccessful attempts, moved to an LMA. And certainly at this point, after four unsuccessful attempts, I would place an LMA um, in order to try to ventilate and uh, make sure that I'm now in the 
cannot intubate, but can still ventilate branch of the difficult airway algorithm. If I could not ventilate, I would now be in the cannot uh, intubate, cannot ventilate section. Sure. Which, what would be your choice of LMA? Uh, I would use a standard LMA. Uh, if I had an LMA Supreme, those often can be slightly easier to place, but I think a, a standard classic LMA would be fine. In this patient who's a normal size man, I think a four or a five would probably be fine. I would probably place an LMA size five. Um, I would make sure to get the tongue out of the way, make sure to secure the LMA in place, and then verify whether I could ventilate through. Sure. So you are able to ventilate the patient through your LMA, but is this appropriate for, for the surgical procedure? No, I wouldn't want to do the procedure with an LMA. Not that it would be impossible to do, but given that the surgeons are almost definitely going to want neuromuscular blockade for this surgery and that uh, this patient, um, I, would, I would want to have him breathing spontaneously through an LMA to use positive pressure through an LMA is possible, especially if I placed a classic LMA, but you tend to not tolerate high pressures. And so I would feel better about having a secure airway with an endotracheal tube in place. I would try to intubate through the LMA. It's a nice technique that I use regularly. Uh, I would get a fiber optic bronchoscope. I have time now because I'm able to ventilate through that LMA. And I would uh, try to place an endotracheal tube through the LMA. Sure. So in the process of, of attempting to intubate through your LMA with a fiber optic, you are no longer able to ventilate. What would your next steps be? So it may be that I'm blocking the LMA now or that I've dislodged it with my fiber optic going through the LMA. I would certainly remove my fiber optic bronchoscope and the ET tube that was over it. I would reposition the LMA and see if I could um, ventilate through it. That would be my first step. And if I'm able to ventilate, I would then uh, have time to reconsider my next steps. Sure. So you were successfully able to place your endotracheal tube with your fiber optic scope. And so... Continuing into the procedure, we're now an hour after incision. The prostate has been open, and our blood pressure acutely drops to 70 over 40. What is What are your considerations in a differential? So the first thing I would do is scan the rest of my monitors. Uh, I know that I have hypotension. I would want to make sure that everything else at the time looked okay. I would want to make sure I was still had adequate saturation. Heart rate looked okay, um, and that the patient was still ventilating with adequate volumes, uh, I would look quickly at the rest of my machine, make sure that I hadn't accidentally turned, for example, the inhaled anesthetic up to an extreme level, that this wasn't an iatrogenic cause of hypotension. Other things on my differential, remember, we have a central line that was placed in the subclavian uh, location. I would want to be, con- I would be concerned about a potential pneumothorax. Uh, I would also, in this patient with coronary artery disease, be, con- be concerned about uh, cardiac ischemia and a potential MI. Uh, other things that I would consider would be that he may uh, have a um, uh, that he may be having an arrhythmia. Obviously, I would look up on my screen to see whether that was the case. Uh, also, um, the fact that he could have a PE would be, you know, a, a possibility um, for this patient. Sure. And then so the, the end tidal CO two is eighteen. Does this affect your diagnosis? Yeah. So the end tidal CO two being eighteen also makes me concerned about a possible air embolus. That is something that can cause acute drop in your end tidal CO2 as well as hypotension. In this patient, having an open procedure on the prostate, it's certainly possible to get air entering into the veins, and that would make me very concerned for that possibility. Sure. Does the end tidal CO2 being so low affect your urgency to treat the patient? The blood pressure being so low, it makes me feel there's definite urgency to this. And the fact that the end tidal is low makes points me more towards an air embolus, uh, more so than it would make me in and of itself feel the urgency to treat. But certainly given the extreme hypotension, there is urgency to treat this patient. Absolutely. And how would you sort out which of these is the most likely cause? You know, you mentioned a couple coronary ischemia, hypovolemia, possible pneumothorax. How can you help differentiate between these possibilities? Right. Well, I'll just add that the other possibility, of course, is, uh, is hemorrhage, it's possible that they're losing blood and I would want to talk to the surgeons and verify that. If they did not say that they were losing blood and I could see in the in the blood collection system that there wasn't a lot of blood loss, that would be lower on my differential. I would listen to uh, the patient do a physical exam, listen to both lungs. If I heard good lung sounds on both sides, a pneumothorax is much less likely. Um, a PE is a little harder to rule out acutely, um, but it would be something to keep in mind. He doesn't have major risk factors for PE. He does have cancer, but um, you know, that's something just to, to be aware of. Also, uh, certainly uh, venous air embolism, because of that acute drop in, in tidal CO2, is high on my differential. 
And I would want to get, if at all possible, an echo, ideally a TEE, if not, then a TTE to try to identify whether I can see air in the uh, heart. And so would that be your, your diagnosis of a venous air embolism? If I could get an echo and I could see that there was uh, air in the, uh, in the RV outflow tract, then yes, that would be a definitive diagnosis. Um, and if I saw that, then I would attempt to remove that air. We luckily already have a central line, so I would try to advance it and aspirate if at all possible. I would put the patient in left lateral decubitus position with his uh, head down and his feet up to try to get that air away from the RV outflow tract. Um, in the meantime, I would support his blood pressure with pressors uh, and put him on 100% oxygen. Sure. So the patient's blood pressure recovers. We did not diagnose a venous air embolism. But 90 minutes into the procedure now, the surgeon is complaining of a slow generalized ooze into the field. How would you evaluate? So if there's a slow generalized ooze in the field, I would be concerned that there is ongoing bleeding. I would look at the number of laps. I would look at the blood collection system to see how much blood had actually been lost. And of course, I would look over all my monitors to see is the patient hypotensive. If not, then however much blood's been lost, he seems to be handling it okay for now. Same with the arrhythmia or with, with the EKG tracing. Is there an arrhythmia? Is there uh, any reason to think that the heart is seeing uh, this loss of blood or this uh, hypo or any possible hypotension. Uh, if not, if it was just that the surgeon was concerned about this ooze, then I would wonder if this is surgical or medical bleeding. If it's surgical, I'm going to trust my surgical colleague to work on that. I would want to make sure there wasn't a medical component. And so I would want to send coagulation studies to see if there was an issue with uh, his coagulation cascade. Sure. Which coagulation studies would you order? So I would send what I consider kind of the classic coagulation studies, which are PT, PTT, INR, uh, fibrinogen, and a, a CBC to look at both where his uh, hemoglobin is and to look at his platelet level. And I would also want to send a, uh, a TEG, a thromboelastogram, to look at uh, his clotting cascade that way. Sure. Does his history of hepatitis affect your management at all? He had hepatitis about 30 years ago, if I remember correctly, and I'm not that concerned about that uh, from that time ago. Certainly, end-stage liver disease can put people at high risk for bleeding because it leads to coagulopathy. But because his uh, every we had everything except his platelets uh, preoperatively that were all normal, we'll certainly check them again. But the fact that his uh, LFTs and his coagulation studies were all normal beforehand makes me think he doesn't have uh, a problem with his liver making factors. So I'm not that concerned about that history of hepatitis. Sure. If your TEG revealed a low MA, how would you treat? So a low MA to me means that it could be a problem with his platelets or it could be a problem with his fibrinogen. I would check the fibrinogen level. That's a pretty good way of ruling that out as an issue. If his fibrinogen was normal, I would assume this was a platelet issue, either a numerical platelet problem or a functional problem. And so if that were the case, I would go ahead and give platelets. If the fibrinogen was low, I would give cryoprecipitate. If, uh, and if both were an issue, then I would give both. Sure. Now, do you think there's any benefit to administering TXA in this situation or transexamic acid? This is where my tag would really help me. If I saw uh, in uh, hyperfibrinolysis, um, uh, if I saw that that, uh, that tag graph was coming down quickly and, and the clot was breaking up, then I think there would be a lot of advantage uh, to giving um, an antifibrinolytic like uh, TXA or Amicar in, uh, in the setting of not seeing any hyperfibrinolysis on the tag, I would feel less strongly about giving. Sure. So that ends the interoperative section. All right. Stay with us. We'll be right back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. All right, we're back with the post-operative portion of the oral exam. At the end of the procedure, your temperature is 34.7 degrees Celsius. Would you extubate the patient? So 34.7 is relatively low. I would ideally like to bring that up, especially in a patient with coronary artery disease where shivering and the tachycardia that can accompany it could be a problem in terms of oxygen demand on the heart. So uh, I would ideally, if I don't already, I would have, I would ideally put on a, a forced air warmer uh, and try to warm the patient up before extubation. Even if the patient is following commands and coughing on the endotracheal tube, would you still wait until the patient was warm? Uh, ideally, I'd like to get the patient, uh, the patient's uh, temperature, uh, and this I would want to make sure I was getting a core temperature. So an esophageal temp probe would be ideal here. Uh, if this is a skin temp, I would be have a lot less uh, confidence in that. But assuming this is an esophageal temperature, uh, I would really like to get this temperature up to at least 35.5, if not 36. Again, because while he may be able to breathe on his own, if he starts having significant shivering that I can't control uh, and that affects his, his coronary uh, uh, ischemia, that would be really problematic. But the patient is like literally about to self-extubate, like grabbing at the tube. Are you going to resedate and postpone, go to the ICU intubated? In this patient, uh, I would resedate. Uh, again, concerned about that coronary artery disease that, that has not been revascularized. Uh, I would resedate him and then warm him before extubating. Uh, I don't think we need to go to the ICU intubated because we should be able to extubate him within, you know, 45 minutes to an hour once we can bring that temperature up with the forced air warmer. Sure. Would you extubate this patient if he did not have coronary artery disease? I'd be much more comfortable extubating him in that scenario because I would feel like if he were awake, as, as has been laid out here, he were awake following commands, uh, pulling at the tube himself, very strong, that he would be able to tolerate some shivering uh, during rewarming uh, once the tube was out. So in that setting, I would be more comfortable with it. Sure. So we decide to extubate this patient, and shortly after we extubate, his blood pressure is noted to be 180 over 110. Is this actually lead to better coronary perfusion? So it's a little tricky because his uh, elevated diastolic pressure is going to lead to more blood flow through the coronary arteries. However, that elevated pressure is also meaning that his heart, which is not functioning perfectly, remember he has a reduced ejection fraction, is going to be pushing against this high afterload. And that's going to require a lot more energy, a lot more oxygen consumption on the part of the heart. And so while he might have better coronary perfusion, he's also going to have higher oxygen demand. And so it's not ideal to have a blood pressure that high in a patient with reduced ejection fraction, with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and coronary artery disease. So would you treat his blood pressure? I would treat his blood pressure. I would want to bring that down. I would be cautious in doing it. I certainly don't want to cause hypotension, but I would want to bring that down. Sure. What agents would you use? I would want to know his heart rate. If his heart rate was uh, elevated, labetalol would be a great op option here that would bring both his heart rate and his blood pressure down because it's both an alpha and a beta blocker. If his heart rate was low and he is already beta blocked, so it may be, then something like hydralazine would be a good option to bring down his blood pressure. Any thoughts about nitroglycerin? Nitroglycerin is primarily a venodilator. Uh, if his uh, if he was having coronary ischemia, it would be a great option. In, in this patient who most likely is having post-operative pain, discomfort, agitation, uh, it, I'm not sure that it would be that effective. It might be, but it's also very potent, and I don't want to plummet his blood pressure. So I would try to stay away from nitroglycerin, nicardipine, um, or uh, uh, um, other really potent vasodilators and just use something that would be a little gentler. Sure. So the patient is now transferred to a step-down unit following an uneventful recovery in our PACU. And eight hours later, he, com he complains of chest pain. 
do you think this is ischemia, you know, a demand or supply imbalance or an infarction? So it certainly could be either of the above, uh, given that it's been um, eight hours uh, since his two-hour stay in the PACU. Um, he is uh, possibly now, uh, depending on whether they started the epidural right away, he may be having significant pain. So the first thing I would do is look at the rest of his vitals. I would go see him. I would look at the monitor uh, or get him on one if he's not on one so that I could see what his blood pressure, his heart rate, his uh, his uh, EKG tracing looked like. I would get a 12-lead EKG. If he had his same stable left bundle branch block uh, that looked the same as always, that would be somewhat reassuring, though certainly it is possible for that left bundle to mask ischemic changes there. I would send a troponin. That would not help me immediately, but when it comes back, it would be helpful. And I would do a physical exam. I would ask him where his pain is exactly. Is it, uh, you know, left-sided chest pain radiating down his left arm, or is it more chest wall pain? Uh, and that, those things all together would help me try to establish whether this was ischemia, uh, whether it was a significant ischemia, as in an actual infarction, or whether this was um simply some demand ischemia, not an infarction, where I, the answer here might just be to bring down his heart rate if it's up, uh, or whether this is unrelated to his heart and whether this is, you know, from positioning during surgery, for example. Sure. Would you place a PA catheter to assist with your management? I would not place a PA catheter at this point. Uh, I would, uh, some of this would uh, depend on what I was seeing, but I would prefer to use an echo, take a look at his heart with a trans, a trans a thoracic echo uh, machine, and see if it looked like he had normal regional wall motion, if it looked like his heart was functioning normally. Uh, if it was, and if I could get a reasonable view with the echo, I don't think I would need to place a PA catheter. Sure. So now we've moved on to post-op day one, and the patient is complaining of incisional pain that they rate as an 8 out of 10. You do have an epidural in place. So how would you use this epidural? So it would help me to know how the epidural had been working over the course of the past day since surgery. If it had been working well and now wasn't, then I would look at the machine. Had he been giving himself boluses through that epidural? Is it still running the same solution as always? If it had been working fine and now was he was starting to have some breakthrough pain, I would check a level. If it looked like he had some good anesthesia over part of his incision, but not the entire thing, then I would know that I could hopefully just expand that by either giving him a little bit of a larger bolus or increasing the flow rate or potentially if it was that he had a level including his whole incision but it wasn't a good solid level maybe increasing the the potency of the solution so if i was using for example 0.0625% bupivacaine i might go up to 0.125% sure would you supplement with an ivpca i would prefer to use the epidural since we have it in place and since it is a way to give some uh, nice pain control without using opiates uh, systemically if that couldn't work. If there was, if the epidural wasn't working and I couldn't troubleshoot it to get it to work, then at that point, yes, I would, uh, I would use an IVPCA. And what is your discussion with the patient about their goals regarding a pain score? So here I would really want to get the patient's input. If he felt like uh, a normal pain score for him, or I should say an acceptable pain score for him was getting that down from eight to three, then we would certainly shoot for that. If his goal was, uh, if he said, you know, this doesn't sound like this patient, but if a patient had chronic pain and lived at home at a five out of 10 and that was his, his acceptable level, then I would be comfortable with that. I think that a lot of this depends on where the patient wants to be. I would also, in a very supportive way, make sure the patient understood that it's unlikely that one day after a big open surgery, we'd be able to get to a zero. What we want him to be not in extreme pain. We want him to be comfortable enough that he can do physical therapy, that he can get up out of bed, uh, et cetera. And are there any other agents you might recommend? So I would discuss with a surgeon whether something like Toradol or, or uh, also known as Ketorolac would be, uh, or any other NSAID um, would be something we could use here. Uh, possibly Celebrex, a COX-2 inhibitor, uh, which might be more acceptable to the surgeon in terms of potential bleeding. If the surgeon felt like it was okay, certainly my own read here is that using uh, NSAIDs such as Toradol are safe post-surgically, that they do not uh, increase the risk of significant bleeding. So I think that could be helpful. Tylenol, given that his LFTs are all normal, I would be comfortable giving him Tylenol, and that can also be pretty helpful. Sure. 
So we've now moved on to post-op day five, and the patient's wife is concerned and is talking to the surgeon that she thinks the patient's eyes are yellow. How would you respond to her? So I would first certainly empathize with her, tell her that that this must be quite disturbing, and uh, ask her if she would mind if I went and saw her her husband. Uh, I would go see him. I would examine him for myself and see if I felt like he had uh, scleral icterus. If he did, if his eyes uh, did look yellow, uh, I would certainly want to send a... um, a uh, bilirubin level if we hadn't already had one and see if he did indeed have true jaundice from uh, elevated bilirubin. Can this be related at all to the anesthetic? It's highly unlikely. The idea that the anesthetic would cause liver failure, even in someone with a remote history of hepatitis, is very unlikely. Um, The uh, most likely thing, if he actually does have an elevated bilirubin, is that the stress of the surgery may have triggered in him some uh, innate Gilbert's or some kind of um, uh, latent benign reaction that may be leading to an elevated bilirubin. Uh, And so it's also possible he could have a recurrent hepatitis. He may have come in with it. It's blossoming now. It's relatively unlikely. But I think the chances that this was caused by the anesthetic are extremely low. Sure. And then prior to hospital discharge, the patient notifies the surgeon that he's experiencing some neck pain and bilateral shoulder and biceps pain. You're asked to go evaluate the patient. And what would your evaluation consist of? So I would want to make sure that I examined him, that I asked him exactly where uh, he was having this pain, that I examined him for any weakness, that I asked about things like bowel and bladder uh, dysfunction, and that I looked at where this weakness, uh, or I'm sorry, this pain was in relation to the epidural. So assuming that we probably placed this epidural somewhere around T10-ish, then I would want to know, are we talking about pain that is in that distribution? If it's neck pain and we had a T10 epidural, then I'm not very concerned that this is from the epidural, though I always want to have epidural hematoma on the differential. Certainly a hematoma can spread, and be and cause uh, pain much in a much wider distribution than just where the epidural was placed. So my physical exam would be an important uh, thing to do here. Um, I would also want to think about where the pain was in relation to how he was positioned uh, and whether there could be some uh, positioning pressure injury to to uh, his any any potential nerve. If there was any concern about an epidural hematoma, if he was having uh, bowel or bladder dysfunction, if he had weakness in addition to the pain then I would immediately want to get uh, a a CT or MRI. Sure. Which would you prefer? If I could get an MRI, I would prefer that um, to give me better uh, view of the cord and and, uh, a better indication just overall of the potential for blood. If I couldn't get an MRI immediately, I would certainly get a CT scan, assuming he he, um, had no contraindication to one or the other, uh, because I want to get some imaging right away. But I would want that MRI uh, if the CT was, uh, was not helpful. Sure. And is a neurologic consultation required? If there was any concern, if there was weakness, if there was bowel or bladder dysfunction, and therefore some concern for an epidural hematoma, absolutely, I would get a neurosurgical consultation. I would not delay the imaging for that, but I would want uh, the neurosurgeons to be aware and involved right away to see if there was any other studies they wanted and to know that if this did turn out to be an epidural hematoma, uh, that they would obviously need to take them to the operating room uh, very quickly. And so I would have them on board. And how about an EMG? I think that if the uh, an EMG is probably not that helpful um, until we at least rule out epidural hematoma. If there's no epidural hematoma and he's still having weakness, at that point, an EMG might help to distinguish exactly what the etiology of the weakness might be, whether it's a neuron, uh, an upper motor neuron injury versus a lower motor neuron injury, or whether it's muscle uh, weakness itself, some sort of um, myopathy an EMG might be helpful in the acute setting of trying to differentiate the really important thing being the epidural hematoma um, or an epidural abscess of some kind uh, in EMG is, is not as helpful as the imaging. Okay. So we are now going to move on to three additional topics. Your first patient is a 29-year-old woman at 37 weeks gestation who's been in labor with a placenta previa and vaginal bleeding for the past three hours. So her fetal monitoring shows a reassuring pattern and an urgent C-section is planned. Is a regional anesthetic acceptable? So I would want to know what the patient's um, vital signs were. I would make sure uh, that those were stable. It's good to know that the fetus has a reassuring pattern. If the uh, patient herself has reassuring vital signs, and if her um, coagulation studies and platelet level are normal, 
then I would be comfortable proceeding with regional anesthesia. But I would first want to talk to the obstetricians and try to figure out if they have any feel as to whether this is just a placenta previa. But given that she has um, potentially, or if she has had a prior uh, C-section, then there's the concern for a placenta increta or percreta. And if there was reason to think that, if the obstetricians had seen on the, uh, if they had seen on the uh, ultrasound that this might indeed be a uh, an issue with a percreta or increta, then I would be less comfortable doing regional anesthesia. So we proceed with regional anesthesia, but the patient develops significant bleeding. Her blood pressure is now 68 over 44, despite resuscitation with fluids and ephedrine. What would your next steps in management be? So the first thing that I would do is to really try to resuscitate her. We've given some fluid and ephedrine. It may be that we need to give some blood. It may be that ephedrine is not going to be quite potent enough, and we have to use some, for example, norepinephrine. If I can get her stabilized with some norepinephrine and some blood or or additional fluids, then I would be okay uh, continuing. If she remained unstable or I could not resuscitate her adequately or she started to develop uh, altered mental status in association with with the low blood pressure, I would need to convert to general anesthesia. Would you begin to transfuse? If I couldn't get her blood pressure up with fluid and some uh, basic pushes of presser, then yes, I would uh, hopefully have uh, her type and screamed already and give her cross-matched blood if I could not get her blood pressure up despite fluids and pressors and, uh, and I did not have cross-matched blood, then I would give her O-negative blood. Sure. Why the O-negative? So uh, the uh, pregnant woman is at risk for having RH antibodies, and so I would not want to give her O-positive, not having the ability to cross-match her yet, assuming we have not been able to do that, then the safest blood to give her would be o uh, because it does not, won't cause a reaction no matter what her blood uh, type is. And then the negative, again, because of the potential for RH. Sure. So your next patient is a 58-year-old man with alcoholic cirrhosis who presents for a colostomy revision. How do you assess his pre-op liver function? So I would take a history and physical exam. I would ask him about his history of his uh, uh, liver disease, how long standing it's been, what history he has, whether he's been worked up for it, and examine him looking for ascites, looking for uh, any signs of um, uh, accessory veins like spider angiomata on his abdomen, and uh, discuss with him if he has any imaging studies. I would look at those to see if he has varices that are evident on a CT scan, for example, um, and certainly if there's any history of things like a variceal bleed. Uh, so that's where I would start. I would also want to send labs. So I would look at his synthetic function. So platelets, albumin, um, his coagulation uh, studies, because those are all things that the liver produces in its synthetic uh, function. And then I would look at his liver function tests as well. Sure. Your, your studies reveal an albumin of 2.4. Would you delay surgery for nutritional improvement? Not just because of a level of albumin of 2.4, if everything else looked okay. So if he did not have evidence of varices, if his coagulation studies were normal or relatively normal, if his platelets were normal, then uh, the fact that he's relatively um, low in his albumin may be more related to his alcoholism and the fact that he may not have a good diet than it is to his liver disease. If, however, the low albumin was associated with low platelets, poor coagulation function, uh, then that would make me much less comfortable uh, doing this uh, non-emergent procedure. And if your physical exam review, uh, revealed ascites, how would this affect your anesthetic management? I would want to make sure that, again, the ascites were not a sign of true significant liver failure. So I would look at those other studies. Again, if his platelets are normal, if his coagulation studies are normal, if his uh, uh, synthetic function in general seems like it's relatively good, except for the albumin and the presence of ascites. Uh, if his renal, I would also look at his renal function and make sure we weren't looking at a potential hepatorenal syndrome. But if his, if everything else looked good, the presence of ascites in and of itself would not make me uh, change my mind about proceeding with the surgery. I would want to make sure that the surgeon was aware and that he realized when he or she got in there and found an abdomen full of ascites that they would have to drain it and that the removal of a large amount of ascites might lead to some fluid shifts, potential hypotension. So I would want to be ready to treat that hypotension and to replace uh, the albumin uh, as the ascites was removed. 
Okay. Now, you also send a pneumonia level as part of your preoperative workup. Would this give you any insight onto the patient's hepatic function? Elevated pneumonia certainly can be associated with liver failure and end-stage liver disease. It's not in and of itself. Uh, again, if, if other function is fine, it may not be that concerning. It also depends on the level and the symptoms. If the patient is completely mentally with it, alert and oriented, with no mental deficits or signs of uh, hepatic encephalopathy, then an elevated ammonia in and of itself is not that concerning. If he has signs of hepatic encephalopathy with an elevated ammonia, that is more concerning. It would definitely make me think he may be farther down the road of of end-stage liver disease um, than uh, initially thought. Would you treat the ammonia level prior to surgery? If he, if he had signs that suggested he had end-stage liver disease along with his elevated ammonia, then I wouldn't do the surgery. I would try to get him optimized first. And at that point, we might need to talk about whether he should have a liver transplant before having this colostomy revision if he really had true end-stage liver disease because the risk of taking someone with end-stage liver disease to the operating room is quite high. The mortality level is quite high. If uh, so I, in the absence of that, if it was just an elevated ammonia without any of the other things that we discussed, I would not feel the need to treat it. Uh, that I would see as more of a long-term issue and not an immediate problem going into the operating room. And your last patient is a 25-year-old obese woman who is scheduled for an urgent mitral valve replacement. Her mitral valve was replaced five years ago, and she now has worsening dyspnea and orthopnea. An echo reveals a thrombus above and below a stenotic bioprosthetic valve, with a pulmonary arterial pressure of 70 millimeters of mercury, how would you induce anesthesia? So in this woman who has significant mitral stenosis with pulmonary hypertension, uh, I would want to be very careful inducing anesthesia, wanting to make sure that I keep her heart rate low. She's going to have a hard time moving blood from her left atrium into her left ventricle, and so she needs time to do that. I would want to make sure to preserve that time. And then I would also want to make sure to keep her blood pressure elevated, given that she's going to need to have good coronary perfusion. Uh, so I would be likely here to use um, some propofol with small doses intermixed with uh, a presser, probably phenylephrine, again, wanting to keep that blood pressure or that uh, heart rate relatively low. I would have esmolol available. And depending on what her blood, her heart rate was, if it was elevated already, I would give Esmolol along with my induction medications, keeping her blood pressure stable, keeping her heart rate low. Would cisatricurium be an appropriate muscle relaxant? Cisatricurium would be would work. It wouldn't be my choice for a couple of reasons, unless she had renal failure, which is not something that we uh, that I've been told about her. I would not need it. It's also fairly expensive, and from a just cost of care standpoint, not necessary. It's also relatively slow onset, and in terms of having to wait and uh, until being able to secure her airway, that seems like a disadvantage. I would rather use something faster acting unless there's a contraindication, such as rocuronium for this patient. Sure. After the valve replacement, her pulmonary artery pressures remain elevated with a decreased cardiac index. How would you go about treating? So the first thing I would do is try to get more information. Assuming that this is now uh, in the ICU Afterwards, uh, I would want to get an echo, see what her heart looks like. Certainly, it's possible that that new valve is not functioning well. Either it is misplaced or it has come misplaced or there's a perivalvular leak. And so discussing with the surgeon and taking a look with the transesophageal echo at this valve to see how it's actually functioning. If the valve looks good, then the echo would also help to differentiate what might be going on. Of course, I would also look at all her other vital signs to make sure that that apart from the uh, decreased cardiac index, she was doing okay. If she was profoundly hypotensive, we'd need to treat that right away. And certainly something like norepinephrine would be a good initial choice. If it looked on the echo like her EF was quite low, then it may be that her heart post-surgery was just not quite functioning well yet. And we might need to think about supporting that with some inotropy, maybe some low-dose epinephrine. And if it was really poorly functioning, you might need to think about whether she needs a, an intraaortic balloon pump to support her heart function and coronary perfusion while her heart recovers from this coronary artery, uh, from this uh, coronary surgery, uh, from the, sorry, not coronary surgery, from her heart surgery, from her valve replacement. So this ends your exam. Fantastic.
I did it. <laughs> you All did right. it. You made it through. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just point out to the audience that as we were going through this, I certainly had uh, times where I thought, oh, you know, I didn't say that right. Or, or that was something that probably wasn't the best approach or I forgot this. Um, and, you know, that's OK. I think that um, you're, you're not you can't let that phase you. Uh, you're going to there's no way that given the high pressure and the speed and the pace and, you know, Anna interrupted me at one point, which was great because that is indeed that will happen if you're going on and on. They need to move you on. They'll interrupt you mid sentence. and That'll rattle you a little bit. But, you know, one thing to practice as you're practicing for your oral boards, which you need to do, you need to practice again and again and again, find a friend and just grill each other back and forth, back and forth every night leading up to this thing. And, you know, you want to get in the habit of when you say something wrong, if it's really wrong and you need to correct it, correct it, say, you know, I meant to say this, uh, but keep going. Don't don't get rattled when you know you made a mistake. It's okay. No one's going to get through this without making mistakes, but you want to make sure that you don't completely get rattled to the point where you start making a ton of mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. I will say on my exam, I completely forgot how to interpret pacemakers and you just got to keep going. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I didn't do it here, but it would have been fine. It is fine. And in that setting, for example, to say, you know, I would want to look that up to make sure that I was doing it correctly because I'm, I'm not sure off the top of my head what the, you know, pacemaker code is or whatever, right? So it's okay to do that and much better to do that than to take a random guess or to say something really confidently that you have no idea if it's true or not. It's okay to say, I'm not sure about that. I would, I would look it up or I would ask a colleague for help, right? That's okay. You're not going to fail because you say that one time. If every question, your response is, I'm not sure about that. I would have to ask a colleague that you probably will fail, but you know, that's not going to be the case, right? So it's okay to not know something. And some examiners will push you until you get to a point you don't know. They'll just keep going. You know, I, it's my examiner at some point asked me to draw something. I think it was draw the molecule of rocuronium or something. And, you know, I said, you know, I, I'm not sure what that molecule looks like. I would need to look that up. And that's okay, right? They're not going to fail me because I don't know how to draw the molecule, of but they just wanted to get me to a point where I didn't know and then see how I handled that. And that's fine. Absolutely. I think a lot of the test is just like we think on our feet all the time in the operating room. This is the kind of the same thing. How do you handle conversations with surgeons and, and all of those things as well? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And just, you know, remember the point of this exam is to make sure that you are ready to be a consultant anesthesiologist, an expert in the field, someone who can have quite a lot of knowledge and apply it well, even amidst stress but also someone who is mature enough to admit when you don't know something and when you would need to look it up. So, you know, all of that is really important to keep in mind. And again, it's relatively hard to fail these things, you know? So if you make a mistake, I mean, I remember uh, my real, one of my real stems was a kid with severe asthma and a history of steroid use. And I wrote down on my, on my notes, when I was making the notes, I was like, don't forget stress dose steroids if he gets hypotensive. And sure enough, he got hypotensive and I just blanked. I completely forgot to say stress dose steroids. And, and it wasn't until the end that I remembered it. I was too late to say it at that point. And of course, you know, in my mind at the time, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to fail this because I didn't, I didn't remember the stress dose steroids. But of course not, right? It's, it's a mistake among, you know, dozens and dozens of points you made. So don't let it rattle you. Exactly. I think the other strategies are just to make sure that you answer the questions the examiners are asking and make it easy for easy, you know, easy for them to examine you and try to do your best to when you get questions to really showcase your knowledge. So certainly you don't want to go outside your your knowledge base, but you know if you know the answer to the question, expand, kind of walk them through your thought process, show them how much you know. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And you know, I I think I actually mistakenly a few times when you asked me what do you think might be going on, said not only what might be going on but what I would do about it. And I think that's not the end of the world, but in general, better to answer the question and not another question. So if the examiner says, what is your differential or what might be going on, give the differential, then let them ask, what would you do about it? Because if you say one thing on your differential, and then you spend a lot of time saying what you would do about that thing, you may never get to give the rest of your differential. And that's a problem, right? Because they want to see that you have an extensive differential. So keep that in mind too. Absolutely. Answer the question and then go from there. And either you can keep talking and they'll cut you off if you kind of go through your differential and then how would you, you know, diagnose and treat between those etiologies. And if that's what they're looking for, you can kind of guide yourself by talking through how you want to present it. But it's not wrong to start with what they're asking.
Yeah, fantastic. Any other uh, advice, Anna, that you want to give? Just practice, practice, practice. I think it's so hard to to say this out loud because we often do with we do these without thinking necessarily in the operating room. And so I think half the battle is really just learning how to say these things out loud, simultaneously diagnose and treat, thinking through, you know, I kind of imagine myself in the operating room and talk it through. Yeah, absolutely agree. All right, Anna, thank you so much. Let's move to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something to share with the audience? I do. I do. So I just got back from a trip to South Carolina and my husband and I are myself more than my husband are addicted to true crime podcasts. And so we just finished the podcast suspect, which is one of the wonder podcasts, which I truly, truly enjoyed. It's about a murder that took place in Seattle, I believe in 2008. And the, the host kind of talks through the events and the trial. And it kind of went into a little bit about racial injustices, um, in the criminal justice system. And it was just all around both entertaining and really, really interesting. That so it's called suspect. Awesome. Suspect from Wondery. Awesome. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Uh, We have an audience recommendation today. And just as a reminder, if you have a random recommendation that you want to shout out, you can send it to us on Twitter, email it to ACRAC at ACRAC.com, post it on the Facebook group, whatever you want. But we'll we'll shout out some of them when we get them if you send them to us. So this is from Eduardo Walker. He says he recently watched a documentary on Amazon Prime named Clarkson's Farm. He says it portrays with a very Clarksonian humor the day-to-day of people that live from agriculture. It's remarkable in showing how people in the city completely neglect the reality in the fields because food production is not important at all in modern days. And he says that's, in, in other words, in their minds, he's saying, the very real consequences of the climate change crisis and the challenges that very humble people face to meet their ends. It's difficult. Uh, in a fully developed economy like the one in England, where technology and regulations exist, you can't imagine the added challenges in developing economies. So it sounds really interesting. Thanks, Eduardo. Check it out. Clarkson's Farm. And then I uh, will, for myself, say that um, there's a, a great um, Radiolab episode from the end of 2021. So they're kind of end of year episode they did. It was called Flops. And it was about all different forms of flops. So things that had gone wrong. Um, and I'll tell you, they had... Um, one of the pieces within that episode was the story of the Northwestern women's lacrosse team in the early 2000s from about 2001 to 2005. It's really fascinating and worth listening to. The basic story is that Northwestern didn't have a women's lacrosse team. And they found this woman who had just graduated from college herself, who had been the, the best uh, you know, women's lacrosse player in the country. And they asked her if she would start a team for them. And she said, sure but she really wanted to be able to recruit her own way. They said, you do whatever you want. So she went around and she recruited. And of course she didn't have a team yet, right? So she couldn't recruit the top graduates because who's going to go to a school that doesn't even have a history of a team. But she found kind of people who she saw something in, even though they weren't the top players on their teams, people who were, you know, decent uh, maybe on their high school lacrosse team, but weren't getting recruited by the big schools. But she saw something in them. She saw two twins out running one day who had never heard of lacrosse but she saw something in, I guess, their stride or their athleticism. And she asked them if they were interested in coming to Northwestern to play lacrosse, and they did. And so she puts this team together. Their freshman year, the very first year they ever had a team, they go something like 5 and 10. The second year, they go 10 and 10. The third year, they go 15 and 5, and they make it to the NCAA tournament, but they lose to, uh, I think it was uh, UVA in the semifinals or something. And then their senior year, they go undefeated. They go back to the NCAA tournament. They make it all the way to the finals where they face UVA again, the team that beat them the year before, and they win. They, they win it all. Uh, incredible story in four years to, to do something like that. Um, and then the, the amazing thing is that, uh, or I should say the really interesting additional thing, is they're invited to the White House in 2005 to, uh, to celebrate their win. And they go and they take this picture with George W. Bush, who was the president at the time. And they don't think anything of it. But a few days later, some of the women start getting calls, some of the players, uh, from reporters who are asking them why they decided to wear flip-flops to this to the White House and to take this picture in flip-flops. And they get all this flack for having worn flip-flops. And it's really interesting because the question is, you know, of course, would, would men have gotten the same flack for wearing flip-flops? And why was it, uh, why did it matter at all? Why was this something they were being criticized for? They end up going on the Today Show 
and they all wear flip flops onto the Today Show. And it's something that is just, you know, just a, a really nice, uh, I think, example of this team coming together and supporting each other. And, the, and a, I think a, a reflection on, on how um, screwed up our society can be and, and what we focus on, um, but also just an incredibly inspiring story of this uh, team that went from not existing to winning the national championship in four years. Very, very cool. All right. Anna, again, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Great to be here. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Drs. Kimia Kashkuli and April Liu are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Quo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.